Hey guys, we're not here this week. We are on holidays. Uh, we'll be back with some more content next week. Uh, what you're about to hear is an excerpt from uh, one of our Patreon-only series titled Interface. Interface is a sort of blend between a podcast and an audiobook. Uh, and within it, Ben reads me um, these these kind of vignette stories uh, that delve into this hidden world that we can't see. Uh, and this alternate history that may or may not have happened. Uh, it's its kind of amazing. It's government conspiracies. It's LSD. It's time travel. It's spatial travel. It's its all kinds of crazy stuff. So uh, what you're about to hear is an excerpt of that. If you want to hear the rest of it, you can head to patreon.com slash DCMworks. Uh, for more than, if you donate more than $3 a month, you'll get access to their first four chapters, which are out now. Uh, and I'm currently editing the fifth. Uh, we think it'll be about 12. Uh, they come out roughly every fortnightly or every month. It kind of depends on uh, the how complicated the concept was to record and stuff like that. So, yeah, if you enjoy this, uh, make sure that you go check that out if you want to hear more. Otherwise, uh, thanks for a great year, and we'll see you guys next week with more fresh, hot, exciting content. So, thanks, and enjoy. Fourth. The Soviets designated large portions of the Ukraine countryside as harvest populations. Basically, their food and water supplies were dosed with LSD until they had achieved what the Soviets called integration. This meant that the local population had independently invented flesh interfaces. The Soviet army would then quarantine the area and try to remove the flesh interfaces for their own use. This was usually without success and with a great loss of life. Many of the soldiers and scientists were segmented, as often happens in incident zones, so they ended up with people missing limbs, cut in half, etc. What's interesting is that the people could live for quite some time despite segmentation. This is what, the le- this is what led the Soviets to believe that their missing body parts still existed, albeit in some unknown place. So one of the leading theories at the time was interdimensionality. 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 Quite mistaken. Number five. Dubai probably has the highest rate of free-floating, non-interface incidents of any major metropolitan area in the world. In one incident, in one incident, a large group of migrant workers were segmented in an underground facility. Perfect cross-sectional segmentation along the frontal plane. So the frontal plane is that plane. The plane... Ben gestures to the front of his body. Yeah, that plane. Uh, You could see their lungs working, food being digested, blood pumping on the inside of the heart, everything. They lived for almost five months in this condition. Absolutely fascinating to see in person. There was also a group of school children who were very slightly segmented, just the ends of fingers and bits of the calves and such. Hardly fatal wounds, yet they all died within two months. Some showed signs of intellectual mutation. There are no known flesh interfaces in Dubai. However, it is surmised that the architecture is actually based on interface geometry and carries some latent interface-like power. Mass segmentations remain one of the most mysterious aspects of the interfaces. They seem to show that the interfaces do indeed concentrate on flesh, living up to their name. So this is referencing someone called Elizabeth Bathroy, who is someone, not sure, some old historical person. 
We look at Elizabeth Bathroy as an example of pre-LSD enlightenment. Somebody seeming to attempt to build a flesh interface before the invention of LSD. How can this be explained? Perhaps she invented... And perhaps she ingested some ergot or some other naturally occurring psychotropic chemical. Or perhaps her mind was simply attuned to whatever intellectual processes needed to occur to invent a flesh interface. The Book of Revelations is also considered to be a description of a flesh interface, especially the description of New, Jeru- New Jerusalem. My problem with this is that it is all speculative. It's like when modern psychologists diagnose historical figures. I'm uncomfortable with this level of speculation. I will always regard the first instance of a flesh interface to have occurred in, man, that's a country, Treblinka, 1944. The geologic disturbances, partial tunnels, so-called inter- interdimensionality, and wealth of clearly segmented body bodies leave no doubt of, his, of its existence. The Soviets have documented this. Basically, when you look at some of the stories of Elizabeth Bathroy's behavior, it seems like she is trying to build a flesh interface, but it is known that in order to invent a flesh interface, one must be under the influence of LSD for extended periods. As LSD hadn't been invented during her life, it's probably just a coincidence. Still a tantalizing theory, though. Okay, what is a f- I'll buy it. What is a flesh interface? Obviously, I can't define a flesh interface in terms of purpose or composition or mechanism. I can only list the various phenomena which are related to them. Chief among these is the creation of an incident zone wherein objects are spontaneously segmented, i.e. parts of the objects simply disappear, yet the objects continue to behave as if the missing parts are still present. So you can lose an arm and blood still flows. Also, you see complex tunnels created in the earth. These have had, these have been termed ant farms. In undersea interfaces, you get chitinous cruciform organisms. I'm going to keep saying chitinous. No, you're saying chitinous. Chitinous. Chitinous, all right. These sweet generous organisms are thought to be the result on an evolutionary processes which took place in an environment other than earth. It's, should, it's meant to be of, but it says on. Um, This is speculation, but in this case, I agree with it. Then there have been the giant metallic cylinders, which appear and experience continuous, spontaneous segmentation. These are usually at least 10 meters in diameter and can get much larger and only occur in very large interfaces, i.e. portals. Beyond this, the phenomena are too various to mention and different for each interface. Many people think that a portal is simply a large flesh interface. This is true. A portal is a large flesh interface. But it is also more than that. A portal is, as the name implies, a way of sending objects between the portal site and wherever the various locations that have been found beyond the portals are located. The so-called sister... uh, The so-called alien sister cities. Portals are usually, but not always, occupied... Accompanied by the large fluctuating metallic cylinders. The largest above water portal that I know of occurred in Navoya Zelmia and existed for several weeks before it was destroyed by the Russians so-called Tsar Bomber. In this case, the metallic cylinders were miles high and covered with features rarely seen on other cylinders, 
blinking lights, nodules, so-called antenna. They took on a very artifactual appearance, whatever that means, i.e. they seem to be constructed technology rather than naturally occurring phenomena. Yeah, so that would be like, <clears throat> that's, so you said it wrong, so it's like, like artificial. It's written artifact. Yeah, I understand that. Are the cylinders themselves artifacts being sent through the portals? Or are they a phenomena created by the flesh interfaces in a way a mushroom cloud is created by a nuclear explosion? This is unclear. I wish I could show you guys pictures of the Navoya Zemla cylinders. They were truly beautiful, rising miles into the clear Arctic air, like giant alien towers tinged blue by the vastness of the distances involved. Though it was certainly necessary to destroy them, and we owe the Soviets a great debt for their tireless efforts to collapse the interface. I sometimes wish they were still there. In response to what the CIA had, quote-unquote, accomplished with their Antarctic station in Artigas, which is that giant portal, the Soviets built a larger station in Novoya Zemlya in the Arctic. I'm going to say it like that. 30,000 prisoners and an exceptionally pure gas concentration created a flesh interface which went through all seven stages in less than 13 minutes and became a fully-fledged portal. Within a day, the typical fluctuating metallic cylinders were visible, and within three days, they were extending miles into the sky. The Soviets quickly realized that the portal was growing out of control. In previous instances, they had simply bombed the site from the air, but in this case, the enormous cylinders and an attendant incident zone extended to the edge of space, preventing this as well as missile strikes. There was also an exceptionally large lateral incident zone around the portal, with segmentation occurring miles out from the side. Alarmed by the zone's uncontrolled growth and the growing underground tunnels, aka ant farms, the Soviets worked feverishly to construct a hydrogen bomb of unprecedented power, which could be detonated from outside the incident zone and still collapse the portal. The steady rate of growth in the incident zone provided them with an exact deadline, which they managed to meet with only two hours to spare. Any later, and the bomb could not have been placed so as to collapse the interface. In short, the world came within two hours of being subjected to an uncontrolled flesh interface and perhaps the end of civilization as we know it. Before the portal was collapsed, however, the Soviets had gained first-hand knowledge of one of the so-called sister cities. In other words, somebody had gone into the portal and come back. I've always found Lisa's dream to be a good starting place when trying to understand the psychological effects of travel. Lisa was a nine-year-old girl sent through the Groom Lake interface in 1975. The Groom Lake interface connects to the so-called sister city known as the Hanging Temples. She stayed there for five days of normal time, but only 48 seconds of beyond time, a marked discrepancy. Upon returning, she did not recall anything beyond becoming drowsy for a moment. She slept well that night, and in the morning she recounted a dream to the doctors before dying later in the day. A direct transcript of the audio from her interview, and this is in quotations. It was spring and it had been raining all day, but the rain stopped just before it was going to be sunset. So all the clouds were purpley and the sky was really orange. And the grass was all wet with rain and there were fireflies around. Like all in the sky, way up in the sky, big ones. And me and my grandma went out to these hills, way out past the edge of town, and under the hills there were people sleeping, 
Not in caves. They were buried under the hills. The people were asleep, but they were hugging each other. Families, like mums and dads and little kids, just packed together, a few thousand. The hills were just blown up like balloons because they were so full of people, like a pregnant, pregnant woman's stomach. My grandma told me to lie down, but I didn't want to. She laid down and got sucked into the ground. I heard a voice coming out of the ground telling me to come inside. It would be easy to say that the Soviets discovered the secret of survivable travel because they were more ruthless, more willing to sacrifice innocent lives. But there was really no lack of ruthlessness on the part of the CIA. It was just a matter of approach. The Soviets approached the mystery of the flesh interfaces the same way they approached their space program. The first humans in space, the so-called lost cosmonauts, who were never officially acknowledged, were just ordinary people, culled from the gulags, with no more control over their missions than Lakita the dog. The Americans, on the other hand, started with professional men, usually from the military. Likewise, when it was discovered that objects and even animals which entered the flesh interfaces occasionally returned unharmed, the Americans began training men to enter the interfaces. Because they culled their men from certain military ranks, they were all of similar ages. The Soviets, however, used prisoners, and who had a much wider age range, so they were able to discover the essential correlation. The younger the person was, the more likely they were, they were to survive travel. They discovered that 20-somethings were much more likely to survive, albeit in a horribly altered state, than older, peop- than older people. They discovered that people in their early 20s fared better than those in their late 20s. Teenagers fared be- even better. So, despite all moral computation, it was really a matter of time before they sent a child through. And it was only after the first round of children went through that they gained any, any idea of what was on the other side. Alright, this is called The Village. Until we found the village, we had suspected that the detectors were just props. Just toys given to us by the CIA guys to reassure us. Nobody trusted the spooks. Three days through the jungle, and those detectors had not detected a fucking thing. But before we even saw the first hut, the needles on all the detectors started moving in unison. If, if they were phone toys, it was a cool little special effect. The needles swayed back and forth, and all, and all the little metal boxes let out a spooky whoa sound all in unison, like a school choir. Very weird. We turned them off. As instructed, we treated every Vietnamese as combatants and killed them all. There wasn't any resistance, though. A few, a few had weapons, but most were unarmed. None fought back. They didn't even run. They were just sitting around, lazing in the sun, and we shot them when we found them. Grim work. And very weird... That probably spooked us out more than the, de- than the detectors. It was like they were just waiting to die. After clearing the village, we didn't know what to do, so we turned on one of the detec- we turned on one of the detectors, and wandered around to see what was up. The de- the detectors started going nuts around one of the bigger huts in the middle of the village. We had already cleared it, but we went in again, and there was a big altar inside, with candles and Buddhas and gold signs with with dink writing and shit. We figured maybe one of the Buddhist statues was setting the detectors off, but no. The hut was very hot and muggy, even by the incredibly humid standards of Vietnam, 
It was incredibly, incredibly humid in there. Even the Buddha statues were sweating. Their faces were literally coated with drops of moisture. Everybody noticed that there was something weird going on with the air. There was something off about the pressure, so we just tossed everything, picked all the shit up, and tossed it out of the hut. Sure enough, when we picked up the big platform that held the altar, there was something under it. It was a pit made of flesh. Maybe five feet across and going down about 20 feet before curving out of sight. When I say made of flesh, I mean it looked like the inside of somebody's throat. Wet, reddish flesh looking stuff. We had heard of them building tunnels, but this was... We really couldn't even understand what we were looking at. It was breathing. The flesh kind of rippled and this hot air came out that felt and smelled like somebody breathing right in your face. Enough to make you sick. They told us we would know it when we saw it. Well, we saw it and we knowed it. We radioed in the coordinates and got the fuck out of there. This is titled Encasement. Encasement was certainly not something we were expecting. It really changed our whole perspective on what exactly was occurring. We thought that the flesh interfaces were just like pipes that went from one location to another. Perhaps extra dimensionality or by some other magic. But when we, when the first subject came back encased, we realized that, well, I'm not sure what we realized. We realized for the thousandth time in our dealings with the flesh interfaces that we were dealing with something really beyond us. That's why I called it magic. They were so far beyond our understanding. It was basically like meddling with some kind of black magic. The first subject to come back encased was an eight-year-old girl we named Jingles, We started naming the kids dog names to try to depersonalize them. This was done by the recommendation of CIA psychiatrists, but it didn't work very well. We all still felt like shit. But what choice did we have? Could we just ignore the flesh interfaces and not study them? Perhaps, but you must realize that the Soviets were also studying them. That changed the whole equation. If they... Well, the ethical issues have been debated to death. What's done is done. We dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, we gave those blankets to the Indians, and we sent those kids through those portals, and now it's just all part of history. Anyways, we sent Jingles into the flesh interface, and an object returned two minutes later, which is a pretty long time for an interface. It was a large organic sack sack lined with veins, vaguely resembling a human lung, about four feet long. We x-rayed it, and we saw the skeleton inside and cut it open. Sure enough, Jingles was inside, naked and covered with blood, with no hair on her head. There was an umbilical cord attached to her belly button, which was attached to some sort of placenta. We had a problem with the surgeons trying to harm her. It was realized later that her blood, its blood, the blood from the sack, had high concentrations of an an exotic LSD analogue. It was getting absorbed through the skin. The placenta was like an LSD factory pumping out millions of doses. This particular blend made people pretty violent, so we had to put on containment suits. Jingle's skin was flawless, like a newborn's. No wrinkles on the back of her neck, no wrinkles on her palms, except for the major ones. She had the form of an eight-year-old girl, but seemed seemed a lot newer. We did MRIs on her bone plates, and found that they were still highly undeveloped, as if she was a newborn. We wondered, is this really Jingles, or some kind of clone? What sort of apparatus could have possibly produced this clone, and why? After a day of observation, she awoke. We weren't sure if her mind was still there, 
Perhaps she had been wiped clean? So we waited, asking her questions. At first, her behavior was like that of an infant, just smiling and gurgling and clasping her hands. It was pretty eerie seeing that kind of behavior from an eight-year-old girl. Really, it was pretty eerie looking at her at all. Her skin was so pure and glowing. She looked like an absolute angel. I, we, well, anyways. After a while, she started babbling, saying little phrases. In a matter of hours, she seemed to progress through the various stages of development, her sentence structure and awareness becoming more and more sophisticated. As soon as she could understand sentences, we started questioning her, questioning her again. Who was she? She said her name. She knew her past. This wasn't just a blank clone. This may or may not have been the original girl, but she seemed to have the same mind as the original. So then we asked her the question that we wanted to know, the question that had plagued us for years, the question that had led us, in the face of all humanity and morality, to see a child into a living apparatus of death. What did you see? What's on the other side? Her expression grew thoughtful. She was such a thoughtful, bright girl. We chose her for her intelligence. So young and bright, and we just threw her. Anyways, she thought about the question, and it seemed and it seemed that we would finally get an answer. A real answer. I remember the sense of an- anticipation in the room. It was like nothing I've ever felt before or since. Remember, I quit the program that day, so I was, so I was never able to question another subject. Anyway, she said to us, Inside the chamber, I started to feel drowsy. The everything changed. I assume then everything changed. And I knew what I saw. I had seen it before. I said to myself, This is like the room in Grammy's house. The quiet room. We asked her what she meant by this. She replied with these words. Her final words before she simply stopped living and sat there dead with her eyes still on us. She said, Come unto these yellow sands. <laughs>